This morning I would like to look at the resurrection. I know I read it out of Mark Luke's Gospel, but I want to be able to use bits out of all four Gospels. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John give us the life of Jesus. Large parts of his life story are left out. For example, we don't hear anything from his birth until he's 12 in the temple with his mum and dad, except that the child, except in Luke 2 40, where it says, The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favour of God was upon him. But when we get to Good Friday, the Gospels seem to all go into slow motion, and we get a lot more detail of what's happening. The Jewish day begins with sunset. And as we see Jesus sitting with his disciples in the upper room, having the Last Supper. Then we see Jesus in the garden when he prays and asks his disciples to pray with him. He's then portrayed by Judas Iscariot, kissing him, and then arrested. We then have the trial of Pontius Pilate and Herod, and then the flogging by the Romans. And finally the crucifixion. After his death he was taken by Joseph of Arimathea and wrapped in cloths and laid in a tomb and a stone put at the entrance of that tomb. But then on the third day the tent is empty. Christ is risen. This resurrection I would like to look at <coughs> under three headings. The first one is the tomb itself then the witnesses, and then the importance. While it's true that most victims of crucifixion were either thrown into a graveyard, reserved for common criminals, or simply left on the cross for birds and other scavengers to feed upon, the case of Jesus appears to be different. Even the historical record indicates that Jesus was buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, but one who did not agree with the decision or action to crucify Christ. Tombs in the early period that we're reading here, according to archaeological information, usually consisted of several burial chambers, which had burial niches cut into the side walls in which to place the bodies of the deceased and also arched niches where chests of bones were placed after the bodies had decomposed. Tomb architecture confirms that newly cut tombs usually only consisted of a simple chamber which had three benches around it and an excavated pit. This pit allowed the workmen to stand upright when working. The entrance to the tomb would have been low, causing anyone to stoop down to look inside or go in. Even as we see in Luke 24, verse 12, where it says, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Only very few of the tombs at this time 
had rolling stones to close off the entrance. And so this luxury was, strict, was restricted to the wealthy, which shows that Arimathea was a wealthy man. The stone we're talking about that was in front of the entrance would have been about four and a half feet in diameter, or 1.4 metres, and so would have been rather heavy to move. The location of Jesus' tomb that we're seeing here would have been known to the early Christians and non-Christians alike. And so the Sanhedrin would certainly have known the location of Joseph's tomb where Jesus was interred. But having looked at this tomb, would not the Jewish leaders have taken the short walk to the tomb to verify the resurrection? Also, would it not have been a motivating factor for the Sanhedrin to provide a corpse to put an end to the rumours of a resurrection, Jesus, once and for all? But yet they did not. Instead, they acknowledged the resurrection by claiming that the disciples had come and stolen the body. This we can see in Matthew 27, 62-66, where the chief priests and the Pharisees get authorization to seal the tomb and set the guard on it. And then when they are told by the guards what had happened in Matthew 28, verse 11, that the resurrection had occurred, but they bribed the guards to tell the people that the disciples had come by night and stole that body. We also have in the tomb the cloths that were wrapped round the body, lying by themselves. Many commentators and authors have different viewpoints on the significance of this, apart from the fact there was no body. But one I've heard from a representative from Christian Witness for Israel was that when a carpenter was completely finished manufacturing an item, he folds his cloth, which is used for wiping his sweat, from his face and sets it over the item to see it that it is finished. In a way, Jesus would have known this, as his father Joseph was a carpenter and so would have seen it many times. And he would have known that the Jews would have known the significance of setting of the cloths. on the bench where he lay as he is stating that it is completely finished and that he has conquered death even death on the cross of course there is more to the story than merely an empty tomb the reason the tomb was found empty was that the man Christ Jesus who was buried there had been raised from the dead by God the Father not only did he leave the tomb, but he was also appeared to numerous people. And this leads us on to our second point, the witnesses. There are actually two scenes to be witnessed. Firstly, there's the empty tomb, and then there's the risen Christ. The empty tomb, the first witnesses to arrive at the empty tomb were a group of women who had gone to the tomb with spices that they had prepared before the Sabbath to put in the body. 
They had got up at sunrise as they had been waiting, having witnessed the crucifixion and also the burial of Jesus. On the way to the tomb, we have in Mark's Gospel, 16, verse 3, the women talking to themselves and asking, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But when they got there, we see in the Gospels that the stone already had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. They also witnessed the angels who were in the tomb and he spoke to them, as we see in Luke 24. 5 and 7, when he says, when the angels say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise. <coughs> Returning to Jerusalem, the women told the apostles. But they did not believe them. Why? Well, in the first century Jewish society, women were in a very low rung of the social ladder. Women's testimony was regarded so worthless that they would not even be allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. There are even old rabbinical sayings that say, Let the words of law be burned rather than delivered to women. And blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. The fact then is that women made the discovery of the empty tomb and that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what had happened, even if it may have embarrassed them. The next witnesses to the empty tomb were Peter and, the other, and another disciple, as we see in John's Gospel. 20, chapter 20, verse 3, where having heard that the woman had to say, they raised each other to the tomb. Although the other disciple beat Peter to the tomb, it was Peter, having reached the tomb, stooped down and went in and marvelled at what he saw. But the other disciple then followed him, and having so, believed. Another set of witnesses to the tomb, who were probably actually the first witnesses of the resurrection, but were not followers, were the guards whom the chief priests and Pharisees had put over the entrance so as to stop the disciples from taking the body and saying, Luke, he is risen. The only possible reason for the story of the guards is that it's true. There had been a guard that had not prevented the resurrection. So, to the, chief, so the chief priests bribed the soldiers and circulated the story that the disciples had stolen the body while the guard was asleep on duty. This was highly embarrassing. But to the chief priests and the Pharisees, it was not as embarrassing as, admitted, as, a, as admitting the truth of the resurrection. The authorities thought to themselves that they were actually making the best of a bad situation. Then we have the witnesses to the risen Christ. The first witness is Mary Magdalene. Although she has witnessed the empty tomb already, Mary Magdalene was in the garden outside the tomb, weeping over Jesus' death and thinking about who had taken his body away. She then turned and saw whom she thought was the gardener 
But when he spoke to her, she realized it was Jesus and called him Rabboni, Master, Teacher. Mary Magdalene was therefore the first person to physically see the risen Lord. The next to see the risen Lord were the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They only realized that they were speaking to the Lord when he had broken bread with them after they had persuaded him to stay with them. But once they realized who he was, he vanished. Jesus then appeared to the disciples as they were discussing what had happened. The disciples were confused about the physical side as he just appeared and then disappeared. But Jesus proved who he was by appealing to their senses. Firstly to their sight when they were able to see him. Then to their hearing he asked them to listen. Then to touch he invited them to touch him. And then he also asked for food so that they could see him eating because spirits cannot eat or be touched. He then appeared to Thomas who was missing and doubted all that the other disciples had said until he physically saw for himself. There were also other sightings by the disciples and Jesus and by of Jesus and others in the early church. But are these eyewitnesses statements all true? Many of the early Christians who were eyewitnesses willfully endured prolonged torture and death rather than denounce their testimony. Why, if this was all a lie, would they all knowingly cling to such an unprofitable lie in the face of persecution, imprisonment, torture and even death? Among the most professed eyewitnesses were the apostles. They collectively underwent an undeniable change having seen the resurrected Christ. Because once Christ was crucified, they all scattered and hid in fear of their lives. But following their resurrection and seeing the Christ, they took to the streets and boldly proclaimed the resurrection despite intensifying persecution. Even sceptics such as Paul and James underwent drastic change once they had encountered the resurrected Christ but still under persecution committed themselves to Christ. James even willingly suffered and died for his testimony. Many other Christians were willing to die for their faith. The gruesomeness of the torture is unbearable to think about. In the reign of Emperor Nero it is said that he eliminated his garden parties with Christians whom he burnt alive at the stake. In fact, there is no record of any of the early Christians, Christians denouncing the faith to end their suffering. The late Sir Lionel Loku, who was a world defence lawyer, wrote having looked at all the evidence of the resurrection, he said... I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This therefore shows that scripture presents conclusive evidence that Jesus Christ was in fact resurrected from the dead. This leads us on to our third point. Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important? The resurrection of Jesus is important for many reasons. I've got a few here. Firstly, the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the good news. There could be no good news to proclaim had it not been that Jesus Christ was crucified. But it's no longer in the tomb because he has risen. The gospel is nothing other than the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. On this hangs the truth of the kingdom of heaven and the supreme evidence for God's existence. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. Just as the hymn writer says, One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now has ascended, my Lord, evermore. Living he loved me, dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified, freely forever. One day he's coming, O glorious day. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of his sonship. It is significant that the resurrection appearances of, to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, and also to the disciples, all lead to worship. The proper response to Jesus is worship, but only because Jesus shares the nature of God, who alone is the one to be worshipped. Just as the Father who loved his only Son, God the Father had the immense power to raise Jesus from the dead. Therefore, to believe in the resurrection is to believe in God. If God exists, and if he created the universe and the power over it, he has power to raise the dead. If he does not have such power, he is not a God worthy of our faith and worship. Only he who created life can resurrect it after death. Only he can reverse the hideousness that is death itself. And only he can remove the sting that is death and the victory that is the grave. Just as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the resurrection of Jesus is the springboard for mission. The disciples can go and proclaim the good news only because of the resurrection. Without it, there would be nothing to declare. But because of it, how can they keep silent? It is the most exciting news in the world. It should be impossible for believers to refrain from mission. As missionaries, we should be willing to serve, but as to where to serve, that's the Lord's choice. You may want to serve him here in Barbas, 
but he may want you to serve in Timbuktu. You may want to stay and teach your Sunday school class, but he may want you to go and teach his word to thousands across the world. Fourthly, the resurrection of Jesus means that his power and his presence are available. The Lord Jesus, when he comes to the disciples, claims all authority in the universe and promises he will be with them until the end of the age. Disciples down the centuries have rejoiced and still do in constant presence of the mighty risen Christ, who is both the ultimate controller of all circumstances that come to them and the strength they need for moral victory and untiring service. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Paul reminds us that because we know we will be resurrected to new life, we can suffer persecution and danger for Christ's sake, just as he did. We can follow the example of the thousands of martyrs through history who gladly traded their lives for everlasting life because of the resurrection. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus is the key to eternal life. Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose the third day according to the scriptures and he is coming again. The dead in Christ will be raised up and those who remain and are alive at his coming will be changed and receive new glorified bodies as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. But why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ important to salvation? It demonstrates that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It proves God has the power to raise from the dead and it guarantees that those who believe in Christ will be resurrected to eternal life. This can be seen in the Westminster Larger Catechism commentary by Johannes Voss where he asks having looked at the question what is justification he asks what is the only ground of God's act of justification and the answer given is the only ground is the righteousness of Christ his perfect obedience and full satisfaction which God imputes or reckons to the credit of the sinner Christ's sufferings and death on the cross cancel the guilt of our sins the positive righteousness of Christ by which he actively and perfectly obeyed the whole of God's law throughout his entire earthly life is the ground or basis for God's accepting our persons as righteousness in his sight. Christ not only died for us, he also lived for us a life of perfect, total, blameless obedience to the whole law of God. And without this, no human being could possibly receive eternal life. So what does this all mean to us here? To us Christians, we should be rejoicing that Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. And the tomb is empty because we know that he has come and died. So as we can receive forgiveness for our sins, just as it says in Hebrews 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that he has been resurrected so as there is new life 
that of eternal life. And that he will one day return to take us to heaven. We should want to continually worship him as Mary and the disciples did when they saw him. It also reminds us as Christians that we cannot do anything but it is all in the Lord's hands and that we must have to do as he wishes us to do. As the hymn writer Augustus Top Lady penned when he was writing the words of the hymn Rock of Ages in 1776 he wrote Not the labours of my hands can fulfil my law's demands could my seal no respite know could my tears forever flow all for sin could not atone thou must save and thou alone. Also as Christians we should go out as missionaries into the world and spread the gospel as the Lord Jesus commanded his disciples before he left them to go into the to go and sit at the Father's side and not hide our light under a bushel. Let us be bold, be strong, for thy Lord, thy God, is with us. And let us go out and spread the good news. For those of you here who do not trust and believe in the Lord as your own and personal Saviour, I would encourage you to consider your life today. Whatever your age, well, are young or old, look at the cross and look at the empty tomb. The Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, as we see from the writing about the cross. But we also see that he was raised from the dead and that he has gone to be with his Father in heaven. If you believe that he was crucified and was raised from the dead, then just put your trust in the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And quicker than a blink in the eye, you will be saved as you don't have to do anything else. Just accept God's free grace given through Christ's death on the cross. More words even penned in the hymn Rock of Ages are Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. File I to the fountains fly, wash me saviour or I die. You do not need to know everything first. Simply cling to the cross and the word will be explained to you. The tomb is empty, so the Lord has risen and will help you. I'd like to share with you an illustration used by Charles Spurgeon at the end of one of his sermons. And he says, Your condition is like that of a child in a burning house who having escaped to the edge of the window hung on by the windowsill. The flames were pouring out of the window underneath and the poor lad would soon be burnt or falling would be dashed to pieces. He therefore held on with the clutch of death. He did not dare to relax his grasp until a strong man stood underneath and said, Boy, drop, drop, I'll catch you. Now it was no saving faith for the boy to believe that the man was strong. That was a good help toward faith. But he might have known that and yet have perished. It was faith when the boy let go and dropped down into his big friend's arms. There are you, sinner, clinging to your sins or to your good works. The Saviour cries, Drop, drop into my arms. It is not doing 
it is leaving off doing. It is not working. It is trusting in that work which Jesus has already done. Trust. That is the word. Simple, solid, hearty, earnest trust. Trust in it will not take an hour to save you. The moment you trust, you are saved. You may have come in here as black as hell, but if you trust in Jesus, you are wholly forgiven. In an instant, swifter than a flash of lightning, the deed of grace is done. All I ask today is, are you leaving here this afternoon, trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus, who came to this world to be crucified and then to be raised? Or are you leaving just as the chief priests and Pharisees who made excuses because they were embarrassed and so did not believe. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we pray and thank you for this time that we have been with you. We thank you, Lord, that you did come to this world that you did die on that cross and that you rose again we thank you Lord that we can worship you and we pray Lord that nothing that was said was untoward towards you we pray Lord that your word will be encouragement to each one here and we pray Lord this in your son's name Amen We'll close our worship singing to God's praise in Psalm 103. Psalm 103 in the Scottish Psalter, it's on page 370. Psalm 103, and we'll sing from verse 13. Such pity as a fowler hath unto his children dear. Like pity shows the fowler to such as worship him in fear. For he remembers we are dust, and he our frame well knows. Frail man his days are like the grass, as flower and field he grows. For over it the wind doth pass, and it away is gone. And of the place where once it was, it shall no more be known. We'll sing verses 13 to 18 to God's praise. Such pity as a fowler hath.
and thank you that we have been able to worship you. We thank you, Lord, for this another day. We thank you, Lord, for this time. And Lord, we pray that you will give us all the strength and the ability, Lord, to come back out tonight to hear your word being expounded to us again. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.